140 characters is perfect for someone who is literally just trying to keep people wobbling in a kind of epistemological disarray. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Welcome to a podcast that searches for the ideas, policies and strategies that can be to foretell populists like Donald Trump over the next four years and the next 40. One of the key differences between liberal democracy and authoritarian regimes or the monarchies of the old world is that you don't owe allegiance to a person in liberal democracy. At most, you owe allegiance to the holder of a particular office. When you swear in to be a civil servant, a political appointee, a soldier, you swear to defend the Constitution of the United States against enemies both foreign and domestic. As a soldier, you swear to obey the president, but the president in his office, not the specific president today. That's what made Donald Trump's behavior towards James Comey so shocking. That's why it's so terrible when the president demands personal loyalty from the director of the FBI. And that's what makes it so worrying when populist strongmen around the world try to politicize the bureaucracy, make them the handmaidens of their personal interests, of their partisan preferences. So I was really excited to write last week for my column at Slate, also called The Good Fight, about a new initiative by a nonprofit organization called United to Protect Democracy. It's called Uphold the Oath. And the idea is quite simply to get civil servants to repeat the oath of office on video. This is not overtly partisan. It doesn't go against Donald Trump in any direct way, but it is a way for them to show that first and foremost, they are in office in order to protect the Constitution, to serve public ends. And so if you are a civil servant, if you know civil servants, um, I have to say from the bottom of my heart, I, I recommend that you go to upholdtheoath.org upholdtheoath.org and take this video and encourage people in your life to do it. It's a great nonpartisan way of standing up for some of the basic norms of liberal democracies that we'll need to survive over the next years if we'll to get through this difficult moment. Today on the podcast, I have um, Matthew Dancona, who is a columnist at more places than I can list even on this podcast. He writes uh, regularly for The Guardian, for GQ. He's an international columnist for The New York Times. He's a very interesting English thinker. And in particular, he has a great new book on uh, the post-truth age. And so we had a wide-ranging conversation, some of it around the question of truth in politics, but also more broadly about cultural concerns in our politics and how Democrats can actually build a real alternative in 2020 rather than being perceived as the defenders of the status quo or yesterday's man. I, I hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome, Matt. It's lovely to be here, Yasha. Thank you. So you've written a really interesting book on the sort of post-truth age. And one of the things I'm trying to understand is sort of what you think is new about our time. Because as you acknowledge in the book, you know, there's been conspiracy theories for a very long time. Politicians have never had the reputation of being the most truthful kinds of people. So what is actually new about this political moment when you put it in that historical context? Well, I think what's new is is not lying or mendacity or falsehood, because that is in a sense, part of the human condition. And it's not new in politics. And it's indeed, it's not new in any field of, of human endeavour. But what is new, I think, is the way in which falsehood is being consumed. In, in a sense, it's about us rather than them. And I think that what happened in 2016 with Brexit and then the election of Trump was the convergence of a number of factors that had been boiling up over a series of years. And th that, that was all brought together in the, the rather shrewd decision by Oxford Dictionaries to make post-truth their word of the year. And I think that kind of summed up something that was new, not new in 2016, but new in the last few years. And, and essentially, I think it has two main elements. One is that the collapse of trust in institutions that followed the financial crisis, and in Britain had its 
parallels in the parliamentary expenses scandal, in the hacking scandal that hit the print press, in various issues the BBC experienced, and so on, um, had a, a major effect upon institutions and the way they were seen. Institutions had always been the gatekeepers of truth, and suddenly they were falling like dominoes. And that converged with the impact of the digital revolution. Now, I was someone, and to some extent still am, who's quite hippie-ish about the web and thinks that it has the power to bring people together and encourage pluralism and liberal values. But I certainly underestimated the extent to which the advent of broadband and the growing power of the tech giants and of social media generally would drive people into filter bubbles and, and into echo chambers and and encourage balkanization and tribalism. And that the algorithms that were behind this were actually designed to give you more of what you believe already. The consequence of which was that you were, through your feeds, getting more of the, the stuff you already believed rather having your convictions tested. And the, the consequence of all this, in, in sum, is that we... We've entered an era, I think, where the idea of truth is fungible and emotional resonance, at least at the moment, counts for more than the old Enlightenment values of verification. So one thing that I found really interesting in the book, but I'm slightly confused about now, I think, is a sort of implicit distinction between supply and demand, right? So one way of thinking about false fact is that the supply of them has increased. And social media obviously has something to do with that. It's just much easier for somebody like Donald Trump, who is, you know, a rich, famous person, but not a politician, to stand up and inject falsehoods into the political system, Absolutely. whether it's claiming that Obama uh, is actually not born in the United States, whether it is later all kinds of false claims during the campaign, than it was earlier, because he can tweet to his millions of followers and so on, and sort of legacy media are forced to follow suit in a certain kind of way, because they either ignore what he says. Or... So, But that's the supply-side story, it, it right? Is, it, and a lot well, of the things you were talking about are sort of in a way, a supply-side story. Is yes. that means of communication now make it easier to spread those kinds of things. But I think one of the arguments you make in the book, which, which I find really interesting, is that this is actually about the demand side, that we yes. used to demand a certain kind of truthfulness from politicians, and we used to hold up truthfulness as a broader social value, and for a series of reasons, we sort of no longer do as much. So how do you think... Well, those things intersect. I, I think the demand side is ultimately the more interesting question because commentators are naturally inclined to look for answers on the supply side. How can we reform this institution? How can we regulate this tech giant? What are we going to do about uh, this scientific institution? And so on. The demand side is so much more heterogeneous and granulated. It's so difficult to get a handle on it, but we must. And I think that certain things have happened in the last, I think, century, really, rather than just immediate decades, which is that there's been a slow shift away from I think to I feel. And everything has conspired towards that being what matters. So to take an example, I was really struck by the fact that people said of Trump throughout the election campaign that he was, you know, a straight talker. When journalists and broadcasters were listing his mendacities, you know, and, and fact-checking organisations were screaming, the guy is lying. But I think that the he's a plain talker has shifted from he tells the truth to he speaks my language, which is something totally different. Hmm. And I suspect that because we live in such a hectic and plural and changing world, people pay greater heed now to the hand that seems outstretched to them. In other words, in the old systems, we were evaluating usually between two parties or two points of view and playing the jury and saying, well, that sounds okay and this, this, or or following the instincts of our ancestors or forebears or whatever, because so much voting was that character. Now I think people feel that they want empathy. Now, of course, empathy was a very important element in the Blair-Clinton revolution in the 90s. It's not a new phenomenon. 
The difference is that these were people who used empathy instrumentally. I mean, they were they were a prime minister and a president who understood that, that feeling had become and values had become incredibly important to the political process. And that in order to enact the policies that they believed in, the, the, the centre-left policies they believed in, they had to stretch that hand out. Now I think the stretching of the hand out is the message. Trump, of course, has a series of very unattractive beliefs, but the way in which he won was not by enumerating them, but simply saying, genuinely, I feel your pain and I, I feel even more. And also it's that lot, it's their fault. He's a great attributor of blame. I'm trying to think through this. I mean, part of what it seems to be with people like Trump is that the distinction between the plain talker and the truth speaker is actually a violation of political norms. But the very nature of violating political norms is part of what assures them that you're on your side. right? So I think you go back to the 90s and Clinton and Blair – what makes people think that they're on your side is that they get you, they have a heart, they're good people, yeah. right? And that is sort of a role that the show of empathy plays in that kind of politics. And now we have a politics where, you know, to some degree that's become devalued because since it's been so successful, everybody now sort of plays the empathy card very hard. And so it becomes difficult to distinguish signal from noise. And partially, I think, there's much more deep-rooted anger at the political system. Yes, So that absolutely. actually the thing that shows people that a politician is on your side is his willingness to say, look, I'm willing to do something that nobody else is. Right? Not- I will say, perhaps I won't accept the outcome of the election. I will say not only that I think I'm better than my opponent, I think my opponent should go to jail. And, you know, nobody, quote unquote, sane, would do that in the political system. No. And so by the fact that I do that, you can tell that I'm not an ordinary politician. I think that what many people thought was Trump's biggest problem was his biggest asset, which was that he wasn't a politician. He drove through the crash barriers of normal political practice, uh, one after the other. And at every stage, people said he'll never get the nomination. He'll never stick in the race. He'll never beat Hillary. And at every stage, he did. Hillary's credentials, which paradoxically turned out to be her biggest problem, were what he went after. He presented her as the legatee of 30 years of failed uh, Washington rule. He promised to drain the swamp. I think that there's there's a very interesting sociological thing here, which is that, and, and I, don't, I don't know the extent to which Trump's understanding of this is instinctive or, or conscious, but certainly he acts as though he gets it, which is that we're moving from a world of institutions to a world of networks in which the the outsider is almost a meaningless term because as long as he has his network, he can gain access to the levers of power. So I'm not sure I quite understand that. So surely like in a network, there are still people who are in the centre of it. Yes. Now I understand that that's not quite as stark as... In the Soviet Union, you have a communist party. No, either sure. you're a member of it or you're not. And sort of that distinction is very linear and very stark and it determines the degree of influence you have and so on. But surely sort of where you were placed in the network still matters hugely. And in fact... Yes, it does. But what's different is that it takes a long time to set up an institution and give it uh, an ethos and a character and a set of laws. It takes an hour to build up a network if you're lucky. And what he did brilliantly, I think, was to use a series of right wing and other networks that were already in place. And yes, I suppose you're right, put himself at the center of them. And that mattered a lot more than his relationship with the media, his relationship with the RNC, his relationship with other Republicans. Indeed, his very antipathy to all of those seems to have played to his benefit. Now, whether it continues to do so is another question. But talking about the election itself, that seemed to me to be very much the heart of the matter. So I want to go back to the question, just because I found sort of a helpful way of classifying it, but I hadn't thought about it reading through your book. Sort of, is this all a product of how a changing technological landscape allows information to travel? Is it a product, which would be a slightly different thing, of the kind of lies that prominent politicians are willing to tell? It's a sort of related question. Or on the other side, is it sort of a change in our attitudes? Now, at points, I think an influential set of debates in the United States has been about 
on the one hand, a term by the philosopher Harry Frankfurt, a technical term, bullshit. Yeah. Um, by which he means a sort of indifference to the truth. Yes. And actually a very similar term that Stephen Colbert, back at the Colbert Report. Truthiness, yeah. Truthiness, yeah. right? But you see, I think that actually in the age of Trump, those two things are starting to look a little bit naive. So one of the examples for the bullshitter is the 4th of July orator, who says, you know, isn't the United States the best civilization in human history? And he says it because it sounds nice, not because he has a set of sort of empirically stringent criteria for what it means to be, you know, is, is, is the United States today better than ancient Rome was or ancient Athens was? And who knows what that question even means, right? But it sounds good, so let's not care about those kinds of things. That really sounds sort of like child's play compared to what we're seeing now. And if you think of something like truthiness and bullshit as an indifference to the truth, I think there's actually a step further where the truth teller cares about the value of the truth. The liar sort of wants to lie about particular points. The truthiness guy just doesn't care. But aren't we seeing an actual attack on truth? Yes, where, And an attack on the very possibilities and very conditions under which yes. we can tell truth. Where actually what you do is, and Silvio Berlusconi was the first to do that, you throw out so many false claims into public discourse with such abandon and such regularity that unless people are willing to spend a whole chunk of their time on politics, they just don't have the bandwidth to figure out what is true and what is wrong. And if you do that, the only thing you can do is to follow cues, is to say, well, you know, I trust the New York Times. And so that must be right. So then, of course, they, they attack the New York Times to make you feel that you can't trust that as well. And so in the end, it just becomes purely tribal. Well, I, I think that one of the cleverest things Trump did was to annex the term fake news, which yeah. has almost become meaningless. The obvious danger for him was that he was labelled a liar. So what did he do? He called everyone else a liar first. And all the organisations that were bound to and indeed have criticised him most were the fake news, New York Times, the failing CNN, the failing, all these things. And I think that you're right, that the, the key is to undercut the very idea of the existence of a stable truth by just firing out as much content as you can, which is, of course, one of the many attractions of Twitter as a governing tool, because 140 characters is perfect for someone who is literally just trying to keep people wobbling in a kind of epistemological disarray. I think that the kind of defining moment of all this was the Kellyanne Conway alternative facts moment, because... It was absolutely clear that Spicer had been sent out and told, make them think that there is a possibility that they're wrong, that there were fewer people at the Obama inaugural than at mine. Now, it was demonstrably not the case. The photos demonstrated it. All the evidence proved otherwise. But they maintained this fiction with such vigour and her phrase alternative fact was so revealing because it gave you this idea that truth is really just something you pick up from a buffet. You, you pick the truth that suits you. Now, that's a terrifying notion. And it is different from truthiness and bullshit because it's saying there really is no such thing as truth. There's just power. Mm. And I think that that is fascinating and terrifying because... One of the things that or, that underpins my interest in all this is that there was always a slight smugness in liberal democracies that the kind of primacy of truth was pretty sacrosanct. You know, newspapers might get it wrong, politicians might lie, but the idea of truth as being a key, a foundation stone of what we did, it was what separated us from totalitarian regimes. So we all quoted uh, 1984 at length and used its language and borrowed it. And now what we've found is that this can happen in a democracy too. Yeah. I've just been in Eastern Europe and I think that there's a measure of mild schadenfreude among some of the former communist countries that the, the supposed victors in the Cold War are getting a taste of their own medicine. It turns out that liberal democracy is more fragile than we thought. I think this is the huge lesson, really. And I know this is something that you're very interested in, too, that we can't take for granted the persistence and the endurance of liberal democratic values. And I think that in 1989-90, there was a sense captured in the Fukuyama end of history uh, narrative that 
even if history had not ended, that was obviously a massive exaggeration, that somehow the liberal democratic settlement and the globalization settlement were pretty entrenched. Yeah. And that was it was variants of that that we were going to be dealing with. And guess what? That's not necessarily the case. And by the way, I mean, I think that there's a way of pinning that on Francis Fukuyama, who, by the way, was on an earlier episode uh, of his podcast, which everybody should listen to. But that, that, that's actually, I think, both unfair to him and overly smug about us, right? So first of all, actually, the last page of The End of History is one of the best descriptions of this political moment there is, because Fukuyama yeah. says, well, you know what? I'm actually one of the dangers is that um, in an affluent society without deep meaning and sort of social anomie, essentially, people might start caring more about meaning than about results. And then there might be real conflict. And that, I think, is a pretty good distillation yeah. of, of aspects of a political yeah. moment we're now in. And the other thing is that, actually, even people who were skeptical, supposedly, about Fukuyama all along, have bought into some of his basic premises. Oh, I think um, a lot of them In did. particular, about North America and Western Europe. They might yeah. have said, well, who knows about China and so on. Yes. You know, perhaps... 200 years from now, we'll have a new great regime. But obviously, in the foreseeable future, North America and Western Europe, liberal democracy is not under. So that's a consensus that went well beyond Fukuyama, including to some of his critics. So I wonder, uh, what can can we do about the post-truth age, right? Other than sort of recognizing it. And I think whether you think that the problem comes from the demand side or the supply side actually has huge implications here. So if it's on the supply side, then the answer might be, you know, in countries outside of the United States, well, let's, you know, actually pass laws that force Facebook and Twitter to censor hate speech, to down-moderate, you know, fake news and those kinds of things. Um, even in the United States, the answer might be, well, we can't pass laws about that because of the First Amendment, we probably yeah. don't want to, but we can put real pressure on those companies and they're starting to change anyway, and that'll solve it, Right. But if the problem is actually more on the demand side, if the problem is that we've become so deeply cynical of our institutions that we're not quite willing to listen to any social authority and that we doubt even the views of scientists and so on, then the answer becomes much more complicated. What do we start to do about that? How do well, we even start? I, I think we have to go right back to first principles in this. I think that the biggest problem, as I see it, it's a bit like an addiction program. I think you know, the biggest problem is getting people to realize there is a problem because I sense a tremendous yearning amongst many liberals for a pendulum, a non-existent pendulum to swing back, a sense that this will all run its course and the pendulum will swing back to a nostalgic world that probably never existed. And I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think that's how history works. I can't see any germinal factors that would cause that to happen. Uh, However great the disillusion with the populist right may prove to be, and I suspect it will be quite strong, I don't think that what follows it will somehow be a a kind of return of automatically of liberal centrism. I think we have to really go back right back. Well, what do you think will come after? I don't know. And I think that and I think it's very dangerous to in times of such volatility to make very ambitious prophecies. I think the important thing right now is to start to kind of rebuild from the ground up. So some of that may be really boring and basic things like recognizing that digital literacy is now as important, uh, if not more important than old fashioned textual literacy. It's amazing to me that children are surrounded by computers in their classrooms, in the UK at any rate, they're not taught how to use them as discerning consumers of the information. They're not taught how to kite mark uh, what they see, how to be citizen editors. And this, it seems to me, is as important, if not more important, than teaching them how to understand a book. Because their first point of call when they're asked asked any question is their phones. And that is not going to stop whatever Mm. convergence technology replaces the, the the smartphone it may well be a voice in our in our house you know but, the, but that that but will, the basic mechanism the mechanism the is going to be the same you know i think that we need to think about this in the academy as well because there are plenty of internet institutions and so on but i think there are probably too few experts in the whole business of digital literacy and how people can be taught to understand this transformative and, technology and, and do you think i mean you know since this comes from a sort of 
diagnosis that was lacking trust. Yes. I think one of the interesting implications is that it's sort of sometimes the inverse of what people sometimes think. I mean, I, I think perhaps especially in Europe, but also in the United States, there's this sort of idea that we have to teach people to learn how to be critical. So it's especially strong in Germany, where I think there's a sort of implied educational philosophy, pedagogical approach, which is, you know, the big problem of the Third Reich and so on was sort of this blind uh, obedience. And so in order to avoid people going back to the far right, what we have to do is to teach them the tools to be critical of lies and to think for themselves and to potentially stand up to sort of orders to go and do sort of horrendous things. And it's been quite influential. But actually, I think in some ways, it's really helped the rise of a sort of postmodern populist right. Because they don't want to say, I am speaking for the truth. And you just have to follow me. They want to say, there's no such thing as the truth. And nothing really matters. And at least I'm on your side, right? Well, I think, there's, so yeah, there's been a horrendous convergence, I think, between the, the populist right saying, forget about the truth, you know, I'm on your side. And the kind of intersectional left, which says, actually... What people call truth is simply a social construct based on power structures. There's no objective truth. And all you can really do is reassert yourself and your particular community's rights over the privilege of whatever power structure you're subject to. And you, you can see the double whammy of that having a, a real impact upon the notion of truth. And I think you're right. So, so what does that mean for something concrete like a digital literacy program? Yes. Right? Because I think that sort of a lot of teachers' basic instinct would be well, when you read stuff on the internet, you should be really critical and careful because it might not be true. And here's some of the truth. But what you're actually teaching people is even more suspicion. Well, and of I course, in a way, I, that's I, right. There should be suspicious when the current president of the United well, States Well, I think reads. it has to but, be a combination of sceptical scrutiny, but also... I think kite marking is, is really important, is recognition that some sites are really good. You know, so I'm all for, you know, grading some, you know, fact-checking organisations could do us all a great service if they gave grades to specific sites that kids could use and say, right, the bbc.co.uk site is a very good one to go to. And you should, on the whole believe what you read there. Whereas perhaps if you read a blog that's written by someone in a log cabin in Montana, you might want to check some of the facts. It's um, a great idea. So not a fact checker, but sort of, a, I mean, in the same way in which sort of, you, you know, you have... Food labeling um, or... Right, you can go to the, you know, American Airlines website to yeah. book a flight, but most people now go to Kayak. Right. So, right. And in the same way, sort of rather than checking individual facts... It's actually sort of a rating sure. agency well, look, for the web. You know, when I when I was growing up, no one would have argued uh, with the Encyclopedia Britannica. If you quoted in an assignment the, the Encyclopedia Britannica, no one would have questioned that. The hyperlink, it strikes me, is the route back to the old-fashioned art of footnoting. And what's your source is a very good question to ask. And I do think that the media is at such, to some extent at fault here because absolutely predictably in response to the technological revolution and the collapse of the traditional media business model, there has been this rush to be first rather than right. And that is a huge problem to which there is no glib answer. But it's up to media organisations to feel they must be put under pressure to provide the right. And the corollary to that is that if you're talking about digital literacy... You need to get kids to feel not deference, but respect for trusted sources of information and make them believe that such things exist. Because at the moment, I think there's a sense in which everything is just noise. And the only thing you can really trust is your peer group. This puts me in an uncomfortable position because I certainly, you know, I grew up in Germany. I, I certainly bought the sort of basic narrative that there's too much deference to authority and this has historically been a problem. Um, but I think you're right that in a weird way I now find myself in this particular point in a sort of strange position of saying, well, no, I mean, actually I think part of media literacy training and digital tr literacy training, but also part of civic education should actually be some amount of deference. We should have well, some amount of deference not to... Cr not credulity, but, but right. a recognition that, that there is such a thing as intellectual authority. So I buy that. At the same time, I want to push back in a different direction, which is to say that perhaps we need to go a little bit beyond the question of what information is available or even how people For sure. sort of relate to truth. 
and push out to other things, right? So why is it that people are so cynical about what politicians tell them? Wait, A, it's because right now politicians are lying to them. Certainly in the United States, the current administration is lying to people with abandon all of the time. A few days ago, the director of social media uh, for the White House tweeted a picture of water rushing into Miami International Airport, which actually wasn't Miami International Airport at all. And he didn't seem to correct it or anything so far as I know. So they have good reason for mistrust. But it's also sort of a deeper set of causes, isn't it? I mean, I think that working liberal democracies, you know, if you are in an authoritarian regime or totalitarian regime, you have to become a conspiracy theorist. Yeah. Because you know that you're not told the truth. And so you have to read the tea leaves. You have to say, oh, this guy hasn't been in a picture, you know, from the Central Committee for a little while. Perhaps they, you know, put him in the gulag, you yeah, know? Yeah, and, sure. and, and that's the best, you know, the best American political scientist trying to understand the Soviet Union and the most engaged citizens within the Soviet Union and subsequent within the Soviet Union used those tools to understand what's going on. Not because it was perfectly accurate, but it was actually the best thing available. Now, if you are in a place like you are now in the United States where, you know, politics is so obscure and we really actually know so little about exactly what was happening in the campaign and the kind of links that the president might have to Russia, the ways in which he might be financially yes, it's it's, um, dependent it's, it's built people. like Kremlinology, isn't it? It, it? Really is. Yeah, and and so even sort of really serious places like say Lawfare, wonderful website run by Benjamin Witters, for listeners who might not know it, um, doing really important work in figuring this out. You know, they run these articles which are basically sorting through possible conspiracy theories, like yeah. eight ways of reading what actually might be going on yeah. from like it's all smoke and mirrors. There's actually not not much going on here. To like you know, Trump is a full-blown Russian agent. And this is, they're engaged in conspiracy theory, but that's because that's actually the most reasonable response yes. to a situation in which you have deep reason to mistrust politics. So, you know, going back a little bit, I mean, this is the extreme form of it, but even sort of 5, 10, 20, 30 years ago, I wonder whether, you know, actually what we need to think of is a quite radical reform of the structures of politics to build trust in those institutions. Yes. I'm a great believer in politics that treats people as adults. And maybe this is over-optimistic of me, but I think one of the things that went wrong in the final quarter of the 20th century and since then has been a sort of infantilizing process. And it, it didn't happen in, in, in one stage. It happened gradually. But on the one hand, the right encouraged citizens to think of themselves as purely as consumers, that everything was re reducible to an economic transaction. And on the other, the reform centre-left encouraged citizens to think of themselves entirely as the beneficiaries of state action. And lost in this, I think, was something that had been and, and continued in some places, but a very rich part of political rhetoric and, and activity, which was the demanding politician, the, the politician who was prepared to say, ask not what your country can do for you. And I do think people respond to that. What's happened now is that political practice and rhetoric have been, it's become a kind of horrible game between overinflated rhetoric and consequent disenchantment. And in the middle, you get a kind of decay. And I think that the the task for people who are believers in liberal democracy, broadly on the centre ground, but, but not just on the centre ground, people who believe in politics full stop, is not to shy away from the really difficult questions. I mean, I think that liberals should be running towards the hard stuff. This is just an example, but it's quite clear to me that many of the big questions of our times are cultural rather than economic, that identity and culture are absolutely at the heart of the pathologies of 2017 and beyond. And the problem is that liberals are in a funk about what to do about this, because part of their response is to go into a cringe and think, Maybe we should ape our enemies, uh, our opponents' rhetoric to a certain extent. Maybe we should triangulate. Maybe we should give ground. I think that what we need to do is two things. First of all, reassert our values, but also be unafraid of offending people. I mean, to take a very live example, Islam in this country is... This country being Britain. This, in, in the UK where, we, where we're sitting, is a huge issue. And it is absolutely the case, as is repeatedly said, 
that the overwhelming majority of Muslims, and I live in London and I have Muslim neighbours and friends, and, and it, it is simply true what everybody says, that the majority of British Muslims are not interested in terrorism at all. However, we've reached the point where it has become the first task after there is any terrorist incident involving fundamentalist terrorists to make sure that we haven't offended any Muslims. Now, that is an important task, but it shouldn't be the primary task. The primary task has to be to ask, how has this situation arisen? How is fundamentalism still spreading? Where are we going wrong in the preventing people from being radicalized? Have there been intelligence failures and so on? But we are so frightened of causing offense. Causing offense has become the, the kind of unforgivable sin of, of the liberal moral order. And I think that until we regain the guts to be ready to cause offense and to be muscular about this, we're not going to get anywhere. Because what so, people so give think, me an example of where that... Uh, I'll, give you, I'll give you one perfect example. Right, because I think it's sort of easy to say that at a sort of, certain okay. level of abstraction, but I think I want to see no, where... No, I'll give you a concrete example. I mean, right. here's one. And one I have written about and uh, encountered a social media storm as a consequence. Very near where I live, there's an Islamic center. And it's on the high street right by a Costa Coffee and a supermarket. And it has very prominently displayed men's entrance and ladies' entrance. Now, I think that's unacceptable. And I think that we are far too afraid of saying so. And I wrote that in the London Evening Standard. And there was a barrage on Twitter of, you know, Islamophobe, you know, you're, you're assaulting religious freedom as if, as if religious freedom trumped every value that could possibly be. Go on. So that's a really fascinating example. I think it pushes us back to sort of first principles, right? And I, I, and I do think we have a problem in the current discussion where we're really not applying principles in a consistent way, where we are sometimes being too willing to concede certain things because we're worried of offending and at other times sort of taking quite a hard line. Um, certainly, I think in terms of how religion plays out in Britain, it's a society that actually makes a lot fewer allowances for religion in various ways than the United States, especially when it comes to sort of strong Catholic believers, for example. Uh, there was a strongly Catholic uh, politician a few weeks ago who sort of expressed his personal views on questions like abortion and made clear that he didn't actually want to legislate on it. And I think there was actually quite a lot of intolerance of that and pretty strong reaction of saying, well, this is just unacceptable, right? Yeah. Um, and then on the other hand, sort of, we, we're not being consistent in saying, well, if we think that, then why should we have public spaces that are so sort of clearly segregated, right? Now, look, to me, there is a set of consistent responses to that. And they are saying that each individual gets to choose how they lead their lives. Now, that's not an abstract notion. Most people end up being deeply embedded in their particular communities and so on. That's fine. But those communities have rights and privileges, not in themselves, but because individuals choose to invest them with meaning. And so, yes, you know, as long as, as, long as, the, as, as, long as the individual's the, choice is real. Exactly. And so I think that but that gives us a set of consistent responses that, you know, it's fine for there to be a mosque, or by the way, a synagogue, that has a separate female entrance and a separate male entrance. But we have to make sure that there aren't power structures within those communities where people who either want to leave those communities are threatened or harassed, or where, you know, people who are not yet adults, who perhaps have trouble making their own decisions, are forced to wear the headscarf or the niqab and so on. I think that where I agree with you is that we're far too squeamish about that. That's my point. The, the fact, for example, that there's the fact that we've actual been, see, we've female, been talking... female genital mutilation going That's right, on it's extraordinary. In, in, in parts of Michigan and in Sweden and so on, that is extraordinary. But, but you know, even though I'm sort of queasy about gender segregation in all kinds of ways, I'm also queasy, by the way, about all women's colleges in certain kinds of ways. Sure. And so on. You know, but that I'm willing to tolerate because at least as long as the people who are part yes. of that mosque are actually choosing to be a part of it, it's not my preference for genders to be segregated in the way they are in in, in most mosques or in orthodox synagogues. But I think that is a freedom that people should have in our society. Right. But what I what I think is the point you made that we shouldn't be squeamish about talking about it. And the bigger problem I think is that this sense a that we shouldn't uh, cause offence to people. 
B, that you aren't entitled to discuss a subject unless you are directly affected by it. So, for example, I think one of the issues that's massive now in a symbolic way as well as an actual way is the whole issue of transgenderism. You know, if you want to identify as a as a woman or as a man, that's fine by me. And I'm very much in favour of demedicalizing that process. However, it is asinine to pretend that there aren't problems of practicality that arise from that to do with changing rooms, to do with rape centres and so on. This, I think, is is kind of childishly obvious. However, again, I've noticed when I've written about it, there is a furious response across the board from a lot of people, first from the trans community who say, as a cis male, you, you have no right to write about this. And then from the feminist community saying, as a man, you have no right to talk about something that won't affect you because this is entirely uh, a debate between the trans community and the feminist community. And I think this is interesting, not because I mind being attacked on social media, because that's all part of the... In fact, I think it's good. You know, It's good to see at least some sort of debate because silence is the worst. But I do think there's, there is this growing idea that somehow there isn't a public space anymore. There isn't a common forum uh, that you have to have a stake in these issues in order to have a say. And that worries me enormously because I'm such a passionate believer in pluralism that I think that unless there is a place where anyone can say, well, actually, here's what I think. I mean, let's take the, the issue of gendered entrances at mosques and synagogues. It may well be that after a, you know, a kind of orderly and sensible civic debate, we come up with the answer you propose, which is, look, we all have human agency. Uh, and if people want to practice their religion in this way, that's fine. And I, I'm perfectly willing to go along with that. What worries me at the moment is that we don't have that debate. We, we simply have a, a position where, for example, when the case, Louise, Dame Louise Casey did a, a very interesting report on social integration in the UK, which came up with all sorts of ideas and proposals about how to encourage the integration, not assimilation, but integration of communities into British civic structure. And it was, a, it was a very thoughtful, very decent document. And it w was received and put straight on the shelf. It was a very depressing spectacle because a huge amount of work had gone into it. It was full of properly thought through ideas. And it was dealt with in two days hmm. because we, we don't want to go near these things. And what I'm saying is that I think that if we want the people who think politicians are liars and don't even care about the truth and don't deliver to come back to the standard of politics as being a worthwhile process. We have to show ourselves willing to march towards the hard stuff. And I think if, if liberals have a, a kind of salient flaw, it is that they prefer to steer clear of it. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think... Not all of them, but, but many... Yeah, no, I mean, I think there is a temptation to not engage with these topics or to sort of stay within the bounds of orthodox language about it because you're worried both about giving offense and about being misunderstood, right? Yes. And, I, and, and so I think I agree on two things. Right? I mean, the first is that sort of making certain locutions to Tamic or just staying within certain sort of instincts and habits we have about, about actually thinking hard is a real problem because it doesn't allow us to think about where our values lie, and more importantly, how to actually successfully advocate for those values. And the second thing that I would say is that there is this sort of real risk. I mean, you said the word integration, which to me is crucial, right? I mean, I retain the ideal of a society in which we have a real sense of togetherness yes. across racial and religious exactly. lines. That doesn't mean that we deny the existence of racial and religious discrimination. Multiple identities, It doesn't of mean that, you know, everybody has to be in a melting pot. And no, there's no, not no, no, be no. But we want a society in which schools aren't segregated by race. Yeah. We want a society in which there is a good amount of interracial marriage. We want a society in which people have friends of all kinds of different backgrounds. And, and I totally. think that... One of my fears about this political moment is that actually we're sometimes leaving that ideal out of sight a little bit. That we're so invested in the claims of groups qua groups 
that the ideal society in the minds of some people is becoming one in which all of those groups have similar social standing, have similar perhaps economic outcomes, but it is not necessarily one in which they're living in the same society together. And that to me would be very sad. Yes, and I think that one of the things that the far left and the far populist right have in common is this idea that you're not entitled to talk about certain subjects unless you are affected by them. So the populist right claims to be the only force that can speak on behalf of the left behinds. And this is buttressed by the whole idea of, you know, the London elite, the London bubble, or its equivalent in states or indeed in other countries. You know, there is a cosmopolitan, Davos-obsessed, jet-setting class of people who simply don't understand anyone outside capital cities. And that's the right version of it. The left version of it is the only way to understand the problems of people who are suffering discrimination is to be one of them. And that is clearly a ridiculous position if you want change. And I think liberals should want change. But in order to affect change, you know, you have to have a conversation. And I, I'm in favour of a quite combative liberalism, which runs towards the sound of gunfire. I think that we've been spooked by the events of 2016. We are baffled by the fact that there are charismatic figures on the alt-right who seem to be, you know, achieving a kind of status that, that we don't understand. I think the answer, by the way, is a podcast like this and things like this, where, where we are actually trying to hammer out the, the, the problems very much from first principles with everything on the table. Yeah. And, you know, that's, again, you know, a second sin of liberals is that we're not good at that because we kind of think that the first principles are, are obvious. They were settled in the Enlightenment. Mm. We've all got mill. You know, we know what we think. And you cannot restate those first principles too often, I think. And also the specific problem is that we are entering a century of unbelievable change. I think that immigration is only a tiny percentage of it. Automation, climate change, the pathologies of globalization, digitalization, and so on and so on will we'll make this a century of extraordinary change. Liberals have to stake their claim to be the people who can negotiate this. Mm. But in order to do that, and this comes back to trust. And any business expert who, who knows about how to get a brand's trust back will tell you the first thing you have to do is admit that you haven't got everything right, but also to remind the consumer of what you have got right. So you say, OK, well, we didn't get that. But that doesn't mean that we have to ape our opponents. Here is why in this new context the liberal answer is the right one. And, and that seems to me crucial in these debates, uh, in these water cultural debates, that actually for so long we've taken the basic vision of a liberal society for granted that nobody is standing up and articulating what that vision is and why it matters today, and not just the reciting mill off by heart, but showing how it applies to today and how it can actually give coherent answers to some of the biggest controversies we face today and show a utopian vision of a society that's better, because though I think our societies are in many ways shaped by liberal principles, you know, obviously those liberal principles are very far from being perfectly realized. And so it allows liberals to give hope for a better, brighter future, rather than just being seen as apologists of a status quo. Absolutely. And I think that that's a very important point, that liberals had come to be seen as precisely that as the rather smug custodians of the way things were. And that's a very dangerous position to be in, in a world that's moving at, at, at a rate of knots. So just to finish on a note about the United States, I mean, I think obviously that's one way of describing the failing of a 2016 presidential campaign yeah. of Hillary Clinton. What do you think Democrats coming from the outside and looking at, at, at the United States from, from a perspective of London, what do you think Democrats and more broadly sort of liberals have to do in order to be perceived as something other than the sort of guardians of a status quo in 2020? Well, I think that what they have to do is not do what Trump is doing, which is specifically Trump wants the campaign to go on forever. It's fascinating to me that when he's at his weakest, he relitigates the campaign and just says, ah, look at what Hillary got wrong. And I think that the important thing for Democrats is just to 
to move on from 2016. And again, go back to first principles, ask what it is that Americans are worried about and see how a Democrat solution to that is possible. Actually, it seems to me that the combination of economic insecurity, racial division, and concerns about all sorts of identity issues is a very, very fertile one for for a Democrat candidate and Democrat candidates in the midterms to be fighting on. But what they can't do is just refight the 2016 campaign and say, told you so. It has to be Here's the the future. What the DLC got so right in the 90s was to understand that they had to be... I remember the wonderful image of James Carville saying, when I look at Bush Senior, all I think of is yesterday. You know, I think of a calendar going backwards, you know, and that's absolutely what you have to present yourself as the party of post-Trump, not just anti-Trump, because everyone knows about Trump's failings. Even Trump supporters know about Trump's failings. The point is, what comes next? We're going to have to deal with at least, well, it looks like at least four years of this this guy. But what do the Democrats have that is going to be not a way of kind of clearing up the mess, but providing a different vision of what America can be? And they have a great start because America is, you know, the most successful revolutionary country in the world, you know. It, it may not be perfect, but it has a sort of Montesquieu approach. It has the First Amendment. It has a, a written constitution that still means something to people. You know, it's not bad. And I don't think, and here's where, again, I'm an optimist. I don't think Trump has what it takes to actually destroy all that. I agree with that. I mean, to me, more and more of a metaphor is, and that's actually what I end my, my book on, which I've just finished a draft of, is sort of a Roman Republic. Um, and Trump is not Caesar. He's not the guy who destroys it. Yeah. He is something like the Gracchi. Yes. Um, about 80 years earlier, who are a real warning sign about the degree to which conflict is now at the heart of government. But they're probably going to go away again. And then there'll be successive waves of it. So the question is whether we can reform the system enough to pacify it rather than following actually in the Roman faith. This is a wonderful wide-ranging conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you, Asher. It's been great. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying this podcast, please be like them. Rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends all about it. Share it on Facebook or Twitter. Start a site with merchandise for the show and wear that ugly The Good Fight sweater to work and to school every day of the year. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests, comments about the show to thegoodfight at newamerica.org. Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.